That song is true, isn't it? To God be the glory. Indeed. We have been watching the news of the Napa fires probably like a lot of you have. And it's been heartbreaking to watch a person standing before the rubble that was once their house. <clears throat> Where maybe they had moved in 38 years prior, being newly married. Didn't know I was going to get emotional about this. And watch their children grow and go off to start their own lives. And as they stand before that rubble, they say, I have lost everything. How do you go on when you're in a situation like that? It's a, it's a life-changing experience, isn't it? <clears throat> what about this life-changing experience happening? Let me ad address those of you who are let's say between the years of <clears throat> 16 years old and 22. Imagine this. You're suddenly taken from your parents' home. Something drastic has changed in the country and this can happen. And you're taken to a foreign land. It's a place you're unfamiliar with, including the language. You won't eat at your table tonight. You won't sleep in your bed tonight. Little do you know, you will never sleep in that bed again. Your cell phone is gone. You're forced into servitude. You're somebody else's property. There's no escaping. Punishment would be severe since this country cares nothing for your civil rights. Over time, you have to learn the language and you have to do whatever you're told. Forget about all the plans you had for your life. They simply won't happen because you will be in this country for the rest of your life. Well, what choice do you have? Slaves have had to do this for thousands of years in history. It's not uncommon. My question for you this morning is this, something to think about. How would this affect your relationship with God? Would you question him for what he is allowing to happen? Would you be angry with him? Would you severely question his love for you? Would you abandon him because you felt abandoned? Or would you know that no matter what happens to you and whether or not you ever see your parents again, that you know you could trust God wherever you were, that you would be safe in his care, you simply trust him. doesn't matter what happens. So would your faith fail or would it hold out? Could it even be stronger? 
Okay, now I've talked to the parents of the children who were taken away. How did you raise them? Would your faith hold out? Or would you just be totally consumed with their being gone and wanting to get them back? And after some time, would you worry about their faith failing? Did you live well enough before them, while you had them, to show them that God can be trusted through anything? Have you really prepared them to stand strong in faith? Have you prepared them to know of his presence in all things? Is our faith strong or, or, or do we just hold on by our fingertips? What is God able to do with us in this life? Could I do what Daniel did, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, or David or Jonathan or any of the others. Do I just survive or do I thrive and grow? You see, we have a choice, don't we? Before we were saved, we didn't have a choice. We, we were sinners, we sinned, that's what we did. We got saved and now we have a choice. We don't have to sin anymore if we don't want to, and we don't want to. But now the, the question of how do I live for God, there's a choice there too. There's power there too as well to think about. <clears throat> so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the life of a young man whose faith was tested like this. You're probably guessing who it is already, one of my favorite stories. And let's look at about whether he survived or thrived. Turn to Genesis chapter 37. This is the uh, familiar story of Joseph. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. If you read uh, the commentary, some have considered that Joseph was a tattletale in this instance, thinking on his brothers, and he set himself up to be hated by his brothers. I can't agree with that. When I consider the whole story of Joseph and what his character is like, I don't see that that was what was going on there. But I ask myself, well, what kind of man was Joseph? You see, he was a godly man, even at 17. That is entirely possible, you know. So as we go through and read his account, think about what he must have been like as you read the words of Scripture. Now consider what his brothers are like, with the possible exception of Reuben. They had trouble controlling their anger, didn't they? Which means they probably had con trouble controlling a lot of other things in their life as well. So, 
as you know the story, they sell their own brother into slavery. Gives you an indication of what these guys are like, right? <clears throat> Don't let your familiarity with the story not shock you with that. They sold their own brother into slavery. It was totally wrong. Pure evil. They changed his life in a day just like that. You gotta have to ask, why are these older brothers letting the younger brother provoke him to such evil in the first place? <laughs> they don't have to do that. Older brothers don't have to give younger brothers a time of day if they don't want to. So you can bet if Joseph brought a bad report, it was because they really did do something bad. And that kind of behavior that might even be devastating to the whole family is no little thing. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. You agree with Israel's behavior? Of course not. You play favorites and you will cause trouble, especially in families. He provoked his other sons to jealousy, but we forget these guys lived a while before Joseph was even born. What did they do with that time? So you ask yourself, so was this whole thing Joseph's fault? No, it wasn't. The brothers are angry anyways, right? And you have to think, too, if his brothers were bad, what good could they expect from their father in the first place? You can't go around being problem children and expect good to happen to you. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please, listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up. And also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. You should see that the sheaf that is standing up represents one who's in authority, right? It does not say exactly how or why, but just that it is, okay? So Joseph is the younger brother. He it would not be expected that at any point he would be over his brothers, right? Doesn't seem to make sense. Verse 8. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph's fault? Where'd the dream come from? We know from the story the dream's from God, isn't it? We don't talk too much about that, but it came from God himself. Is it Joseph's fault that he had this dream? No, it's not. Did God make a mistake in giving him the dream? Of course not. God chose to give the dream because of future events that were going to happen, and he wanted to prepare them. They took the message of God and just turned it upside down, didn't they? Verse 9, now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. 
he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? The sun and the moon representing mom and dad, right? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So now he dreams that even his parents, he is somehow over his parents and authority. And that would really be unheard of unless, you know, your father was king and you were destined to be the king, right? But there again, all those brothers are in front of him, right? So this is highly unusual. And everyone is upset at Joseph, aren't they? We don't usually think of this, but we wonder, how, how, would Joseph, how did Joseph feel going through this? Having these dreams, these were significant dreams, and Joseph knew it. Do you see? What was he supposed to do? He was not having delusions of grandeur like some might think. These dreams were quite unsettling, and they would be for somebody who knew it was a dream from God. In some sense, you might see it's kind of scary even, possibly. Such a change in the order in the family suggests that something very drastic is going to happen, do you see? Was he supposed to keep that to himself? But his brothers are even more angry at him now. But let us ask the question, what should they have done? What should the bro- how should the brothers have reacted and how should have Jacob reacted? God gave the dream, so there must be a right reaction instead of this ugly one. Do you agree? What would a godly reaction be? A godly reaction means that God is considered in the reaction, right? And it would be appropriate for you to have behavior that reflects that. Had his dad and his brothers been sensitive to God in their lives and believed that God was working all all things out, they should have seen it in a different light. So if we divide dreams into two categories, you know, dreams that don't come from God and dreams that do come from God, <clears throat> we definitely agree that this one is from God and it was not, it's not unusual in the former times for God to give dreams to people, right? When he wanted to speak to him. You even remember in the New Testament with Joseph being given a dream. He was not going to get married to Mary because of what, it, what he thought had happened and God gave him a dream to turn that around, Okay. So when God gives a dream, it's very significant, very important. Think about it. If you had a dream from God, wouldn't you know it? You would know it. You know why? Because he's going to make sure you do. So Jacob and his other sons should have recognized the dream as being from God. Joseph was not the kind of person who would have been arrogant and think himself higher than others. If the dream was from God, then what would it mean? As we saw, the natural order in the family is going to be turned upside down. That means something drastic is going to happen. That means, hey, it's time to pay attention. God's speaking. Something's going to happen here, right? That should be the attitude. Instead of focusing on Joseph and being angry at him, they should have been focused on God. They should have been thankful for really, the message that was being given them, shouldn't they? And then they should do their best to know as much as possible about it or at least understand that they need to be prepared for something that was going to happen. It was going to be very unusual. 
And if you think about it, you think about Joseph's dreams. They do not indicate that some drastic thing's going to happen to them, that they should be so upset. It's unusual, but it wasn't bad. Of course, they didn't know about the famine that was going to come. But that wasn't part of the dream. God was doing them a favor, really, warning them that a change was going to take place, and he didn't have to do that. Joseph, for some unknown reason, um, was going to become some kind of significant authority, according to these dreams. And that's not bad. But when you have a bad attitude, you can make anything bad, can't you? Attitude is so important. And if you think about it, attitude shows where your trust is, doesn't it? I would point out, <clears throat> because we, most of us know the story really well, that there was not one single indication in going through the story of Joseph that he had a bad attitude whatsoever. If you look at the story, and we will, you'll see his behavior is consistent all the way through, despite how he's treated. So... We see what the brothers and the dad should have done. Now we're going to see what they really did do. Verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture and their, pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring them back to me. So he went... So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. If you were Joseph, would you want to go? Go and see those brothers who hate you, who can't speak to you on kind terms. Yet Joseph was obedient to his dad despite his own wishes or his own fears. Look at verse 15, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are, pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. A lot of people look at this passage of scripture and speculate, why did God put this here? How does it really help the story? And there are even some Hebrew commentators that say, well, that, the man that was there was really the angel Gabriel. There's no indication of anything like that here. It's easy to connect this to obedience to his father. We're going to see more of Joseph's character here. Aren't there times when you know you should do something and you start out to obey, but you're not really committed and you're looking for an easy way out if you can find it, right? See, when Joseph got to Shechem and didn't find his brothers, he could have back home. Oh, they're not there, Dad. Don't know where they are. He could have got out, it easy, out of it easily, couldn't he? But he didn't, such is Joseph's character. Verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Don't take that lightly. Put your own brother to death. Don't let the scripture seem too familiar. This is no little thing. 
It's been done many times in history, hasn't it? The first time it happened, it was between two brothers, Cain and Abel, right? Abel, Cain killed his brother Abel in anger. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we'll say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. They were going to murder him and then lie about it. One sin usually leads to another, doesn't it? Reuben talks him out of it, though. Reuben's the oldest. It's not likely they would go against him, so they, they end up selling him to the Midianites who were passing by as a slave. So this 17-year-old is carted off to another country, a foreign people, another culture, probably another language, and other gods. Now think back to the question I asked at the beginning to those of you who are between 16 and 22. This is exactly where Joseph is at, isn't it? What would he be thinking? How would he feel? Those rotten brothers of mine, this time they've gone too far. It's not fair. It's not right. All I've tried to do all my life is what is right. Why is this happening to me? Right? Can you people say we've said things like that when we've been in hard circumstances, haven't we? I know I have. Why are you allowing this, God? Don't you love me? And after some time passes, when is this going to end, Lord? What's going to happen to me? Here was a godly young man who was thoroughly and completely wronged. And did he fall apart? What happened to his faith? Turn to chapter 39, and we'll start in verse 2. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's like the light comes on. The Lord was with Joseph, and so he became a successful man. Don't you love it? I love... Isn't that great? And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. It gets better. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on the account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. It's like God can't stop talking about it, right? So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with, them, with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Do you see the trust he's putting in Joseph? What's the one thing that's clear during Joseph's trial here? God is with him, and he knows it. Would God have done this if Joseph had gone kicking and screaming all the way to Egypt? Probably not. Maybe there might have to be some correction first. 
When David slew Goliath, his faith was strong, wasn't it? But it wasn't something that just happened overnight. David's faith in God grew over the years as he lived for God and trusted God and saw God work in his life. Can't you see that Joseph, he's just like David. He lived the same way. But, as you know in the story, Joseph's trial progresses, doesn't it? You know the story. Just when everything was going well, and it's like, okay, it's bad to be here, but it couldn't get any sweeter than this, right? He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into the king's prison. Now, the king's prison is just not the regular old prison, right? Some of you know this, right? The king's prison means you are an enemy of the king. You think things go well with you there? Probably not. There's probably no such thing as parole. <laughs> you sit there and rot for years, and Joseph was there for years. He's gone from being a slave to being a prisoner. Well, I don't know. If there was ever a situation you could get angry about, it could be this one, huh? Ah, how could this happen? One might even get angry at God for letting it happen. How could this happen, Lord? Prison? Really? After everything else, wasn't this enough? Bad things happen in this world, don't they? Hard things happen. Some people, when they go through hard times like this, they decide that there is no God. And they couldn't be more wrong. With the Joseph, you never read one single word about him being mad at God questioning God, or even having a pity party, which everybody would agree that he should have, right? If anybody should have a pity party, this guy deserves it, right? God does not record even one word of Joseph's faith failing. Because if it were really true, think about this. When he was at Potiphar's house and he had everything going for him, and he got all caught up in making the business work and making Potiphar rich... which means his faith would be weakened, right? He could have let all that success go to his head. He could have had Potiphar's wife and got away with it. But that's not what Joseph did. Because that's not what he was like. When he went to prison, he did not fall apart because he still knew God was with him. How do we know that? Let's look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. How about that? So if you think about Joseph's life there in Egypt, what was it like? First of all, he's in charge of Potiphar's house, a high official in Egypt. Then he's in charge of the prison. And then, as you know this, how the story goes, he becomes in charge of the country just under the, the pharaoh. Each person in authority completely turning over to Joseph's everything and not giving another thought about it, giving it over to this foreigner, this slave. 
this former prisoner. Because it was obvious to them, even though they were unbelievers, that God was with this man. It was clear to them. So, you want to know how Joseph endured this tremendous trial? How did he live so profitably in another country under such circumstances? God had showed him a little bit of the future, didn't he? And Joseph believed it. And when he landed in Egypt, he believed God was there with him and walked with him all the way through it. He simply trusted God. And it paid off. Faith, it's interesting we sang that song earlier. Um, I don't know if you've heard this before, but faith is actually an, a- an acronym. It stands for Fantastic Adventure in Trusting Him. All depends on how you look at your trials, huh? Rome, uh, Joseph didn't know Romans 8, 28, and 29, but he sure lived like he knew them. Huh? He loved God. He believed God was worthy of giving his all. No matter what circumstance he was in, no matter what happened, and he sure got tested, didn't he? But so did Abraham on Mount Moriah. So did Job, right? Not unusual. When you think about Job, the devil had it in for Job, didn't he? And the devil went as far as God would let him. He really pushed it to the max. But what was Job's response when his wife told him to curse God and die? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know what? Most rich people who have lost everything don't have that kind of answer, do they? In fact, some of them commit suicide, but not someone who knows God. Satan loves it when people commit suicide. You ever thought about that? He does. Because why do people commit suicide? They do it because they don't have hope. And that's what Satan would love people to do, is to come to that conclusion that there is no hope. He would do anything to destroy what God loves and take away his glory. So when we're facing deep, deep trials or severe testing, you know, we don't often consider the glory of God, but we really should. It would actually be helpful to us. In a real way, his reputation is at stake, but only because he lets it. You see, Satan did not care anything personally about Job, except that if he could ruin Job and take away from God's glory, he would be delighted. He wants God to be hated. Do you understand? And when you see things in the world causing people to hate God, you can bet he's behind it. He wants God to look bad. He wants to show people that God is not worth living for. He does this by proving it in the lives of people. And some of those people fall to it. Job lost all he had. And for what reason? You know, Job died not having any idea why that all happened to him. Relatively speaking, Job's trouble was of shorter duration than Joseph's. Joseph, in a real sense, lost his whole life, didn't he?
I want to look at Joseph today because we see a man who's put through a trial of great magnitude and great duration, but his life shows that God can be trusted. God is bigger than any trial we could ever go through. His trial turned out to be, for most of his life and for many, many years, you know, even when he became prime minister, he had plenty of time to doubt, to wonder, you know, but he didn't. He let God work his plans out because he knew God could. One thing I like to remember when I'm studying Old Testament characters, you and I have read their stories many times. We're very familiar with them, maybe even sometimes too familiar. What's important to remember when you read a story like this is that Joseph didn't know his story. He had no idea what was going to happen. He walked through this with no knowledge at all. And so it's a wonderful thing, but it's a huge responsibility that God says, you know what, I wrote this down for your sake. We don't have any excuse. But if you think about it in the other terms, we have a lot of hope, don't we? We can take courage, can't we? Because we know what He will do. So the application I want to make is this. You and I face hard trials in life, don't we? We face small ones too. Sometimes we let the small things get to us more than the big things. But they're no less significant in God's sight. But no matter what happens, God can and should be trusted. No matter what happens. I know He is with me, don't you? No matter what happens, I know somehow, some way, even if it takes a long time, He's working it all together for His glory and my good. And he could do it just for his glory and not my good, but he's chosen to include me and you. We are often distracted by this notion that we should have happy lives. We should be successful and prosperous. And there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, right? But in this deeply fallen world, they cannot be our only hope and purpose in life. If that were really true, it wouldn't actually be fair because there's a lot of people in this world who would never be able to achieve it. So I want you to look at the story of Joseph today and not lose hope in your trials. I love this story. I've thought about it often as I grow older and, and hard things happen and things happen to me that shouldn't happen to me. I think about this story and I remember, yeah, that's what happened to Joseph, but God was... God was there and took him through it. It was not a problem. But you know what? I want to push it a little further than that, okay? I don't want to live a life where I'm just barely hanging on. Do you? Can we do more than just not lose hope? In 2004, Kaiser Permanente launched its Thrive campaign, which continues to this day. I, I love their, their campaign. I think it's awesome. I related also into the, the health field and stuff like that. But they said, we realized that, first of all, if we were to address the full range of health needs of our members as well as to reach out into the community and attract more members, we'd have to begin to change both internal and external perception of what Kaiser Permanente was really about. And so we began working with an advertising campaign, and somebody there came up with the wonderful word, Thrive as a way of embodying our commitment to total health, not just to fix people, 
but actually help them thrive. And you know, that's really revolutionary in the healthcare business because all doctors think about is fixing. They're talking, about going, they're talking about going something that's big on my heart and that's preventive medicine. Do we even have to get sick and have these problems in the first place? Thrive. Well, I think you agree with me this morning. If there's anyone in the world who should thrive, it should be the child of God, right? There is no excuse not to. So what we want to do is we put that into proper perspective, we see just how thriving can be done. So when you consider the hard things in life that happen, right, and the trials and the trouble, they only happen because of the presence of sin in the world, right? If there were no sin, we'd not have this. Even creation groans because of sin in the world, doesn't it? People made this mess, but God chose at his own cost to save the very people who made the mess. He didn't have to do that. It was a total act of grace on his part. And it's reflected in that famous song. So many people sing this and they know it by heart. Even people who don't really understand Christianity sing the songs and they, they need to listen to the words they're singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a good person going to heaven like me, that saved a wretch like me. I once was, you know, working my way to heaven. No, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. If it is true that the Lord Jesus Christ came here and suffered hell for me so that I could be forgiven, then it stands to reason if he didn't do anything more for me for the rest of eternity, he's already done more than he should have. Any suffering I am going through is a pleasure compared to what he did for me. Some might say, how can you say that? A pleasure? Not in the sense you're thinking. Actually, much greater than what you're thinking. As a Christian, I'm more than just happy. With God, everything is so much greater, isn't it? I have joy, which far exceeds happiness. I'm not condemning happiness, but I'm just making a contrast here. When I considered all that God has done for me and what he saved me from, I am far more than happy. Joy is something I have no matter what, and it cannot be taken away. In fact, in the midst of something really hard, even if I am failing terribly, I can turn to him, and I can have that peace and joy back in a second. And I've done it, and it's wonderful. It's good to know he's there and he cares. He saved me from my sin. He made me his own by adopting me into his family. He gave me every spiritual blessing in, in, in the heavens. His own spirit indwells within me. He's made me more promises than I can remember. And he's kept every one of them since the day I met him. He gave me a future I can hardly describe. And not in a dream. But written down in his word, I can read it anytime I want to. Time is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity, isn't it? Maybe less than a drop if you really think about it. 
And eternity holds joy and pleasure I cannot even describe to you. But one of these days I hope to try. And the best part of eternity is I'm going to be with the one who gave all of this to me. And there'll never, ever be a bad day again, forever. To complain here really would be a sin, wouldn't it? It's been said before. Here's one of the greatest promises that puts all our trials into perspective and happens to be my favorite verses, Romans 8, 28 and 29. A lot of you probably know 28. And I just want to touch on it a little bit here. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Notice, it does not just say that He can take all the good things in my life and use them for my good. He's not limited like that, is he? It does not say that he uses the things that are right in my life for my good. It does not say that only things that are within his will can be used for my good. Are you following me on that? It says he uses all things. And I typed capital A, capital L, capital L on my paperwork here. Everything, every moment, every day, every place, every circumstance, every hard thing, every wrong thing, even the bad things, everything is subject to Him, and He can turn it around and make good out of it. You have a hard time believing that? Humans, created by and for God in the image of God, took the Son of God and beat Him mercilessly and hung Him on a cross. And what did the Father do? He poured out the wrath on him that I should have had instead, and so should have you. He took the crucifixion of Jesus, which was the worst thing that ever happened in all of time, and turned it into the greatest thing that ever happened in all time. And if he can do that, he can do anything, don't you think? Joseph knew this. And in the end, when his brothers thought he might take revenge on them, selling him as a slave, do you remember what he says to him in Genesis 50, 20? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. So when we're in an intense trial... You can see these questions really don't have to be asked. You know, why are you allowing this God? Don't you love me? When's it all going to end? What's going to happen to me? It's even possible for us to follow Job's example. In Job 13, 15, listen to these words. People cannot say this who don't know the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Huh? Wow. We... On the other hand, for those who don't know this, the, those words like they could, we, on the other hand, can thrive, can't we? If you're anything. Have you ever found that you regretted trusting God? But you can't even name one instance where you regretted that. What we do regret is not trusting Him. Who knows the blessings we missed, huh? All right, let's wrap this up. When you get to heaven, you go ask Joseph... You go ask him, was it worth it? Would you, would you do it differently? Would you have prevented your brothers from selling you like that? You know what he'll say? 
God was more than worth it. He was with me all the way. The joy I have now and the reward I have now far exceeds any loss I suffered in life. In fact, you know what? I wish I had given him more. So can you look at the story of Joseph now and think the word thrive? Faith that thrives. Hmm? I know it's hard. It is hard, isn't it? I had a list of all the suffering that was going on in this church, but I don't have time to read it. But we all know it. And we all know the hard things people are going through. But that's not the point. Life is hard no matter what. The point is, is God's worth trusting through anything. We can have a thriving faith. And I want to say one more thing before I stop. A, th a thriving faith comes from growth and maturing and experiencing God's faithfulness. And in doing that, we're going to fail. And I want you to remember one thing that's really important. Do you know what God wants you to do when you fail? Get up. Get up. Get up and get going. He doesn't want you to stay there. The last thing he wants you to do is have a pity party. How many times do I have to get up? As many as it takes. As many as it takes. It'll pay off. It will pay off. And it will be fruitful. I want to, I want to make one suggestion that came to mind uh, um, from doing this message. If you have never read Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard, you ought to read it. It goes, when you read that, it gives you all kinds of insight about how God works with us through our trials and brings us to the high places, to a thriving faith. That's a wonderful thing. There's actually a children's version, too, that I read to my kids many times. I actually love to read that book, too. It's all good. May God help us to thrive for his glory. huh? Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. This is a, a world full of sin, Lord. You shouldn't have anything to do with it. And if it were up to us, there would be no way we could clean this up or do anything to make any good out of it. But you can, and you have. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us, each one of us, for wherever we're at, Lord, to begin to thrive, if we're not all thriving already, in faith in you. And let our lives prove, Lord, the great God that you really are. In Jesus' name, amen.